Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. The number of automobiles in the world is forecast to surge from about 800 million today to somewhere between two and four billion over the next 40 years. To some, that presents a huge business opportunity and increased individual freedom. Others see gridlock, social stress, and environmental disasters. With growing ranks of middle-class consumers in China, India, Brazil, and other emerging economies, what is the future of the automobile? Can personal mobility be decoupled from the burning of fossil fuels that is destabilizing the Earth's ability to support life as we know it? Can American auto companies keep up with their international competitors? I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One, the sustainability initiative here at the Commonwealth Club. And over the next hour, we'll discuss cars, fuels, and technology with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. Our guest is an icon of the global auto industry. William Clay Ford Jr. was CEO of Ford Motor Company from 2000 to 2006, and today serves as executive chairman of Ford, which is the 25th largest company in the world. Please welcome Mr. Ford to Climate One. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin with it. You wrote a letter on, on sustainability in June of this year, and you talked about the future of automobiles in a world where there's going to be two or four billion uh, automobiles, and you talked about urbanization and, and a more holistic view of transportation. What's your vision for that? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when people think about the auto industry and they think about the environment, most everybody's been focused on CO2 and and uh, and fossil fuels and the effect that that has both on us politically and also uh, environmentally. And that's absolutely an appropriate focus. But I started to realize there's this other looming issue that was lurking out there that nobody was focused on, and that's what I started calling global gridlock. Um, because if you just do the math, and you just did some of it, um, in our lifetime, the world's going to go from about 7 billion people to about 9 billion people. Um, while that's happening, the number of cars... Uh, are, is going to go from just under a billion today to, as you said, two, two to four billion. There's another phenomenon that's happening at the same time, which is people are increasingly moving to cities. So um, you're going to have 75% of those nine billion people living in urban areas. And how are they going to move? Um, I mean, it's, it's a huge issue, and it's an issue today. 
you know, mostly outside of the U.S., although I suppose if you're in Los Angeles and other places, you'd say it's already here today, but certainly not to the extent that it is in many parts of the world, particularly Asia. I mean, I, you may have seen last summer they had an 11-day traffic jam uh, in China, which is, you know, incredible. Um, and yet it's only the tip of the iceberg. So how is the world going to address this issue, and how are we as uh, mobility providers going to provide solutions and not be part of the problem? And, um, and so, you know, I'm not trying to turn attention from CO2 and fuel economy, but I think we're on a good road there. I mean, we've got a lot of battles ahead of us and a long way to go, but I can see a game plan to get us to um, – a, a, uh, an environmental answer that people are going to be happy with and that I'm going to be happy with. But put another way, even if we clean up our cars, four billion clean cars is still four billion cars. And, um, and so we need to solve that problem. And, 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 and if I could take just a second, I don't want to be too long-winded, but just to say a couple of things that we're doing in that regard. Sure. Because I think it's interesting. Technology is really going to be what sets us free, and a lot of that technology is being developed here in California, particularly Silicon Valley. We at Ford are um, – we just put out a fleet of uh, de- demonstrator vehicles with vehicle-to-vehicle technology. What that basically does is if your car is five miles ahead of mine in traffic and you hit a traffic jam, it'll tell my car immediately – well, tell all the cars around it immediately – and then the car can automatically reroute itself. We just uh, introduced um, a, a concept car called Evos, which is connected to the cloud, which can not only it can check your blood sugar and your blood pressure and all those things, but it can also anticipate what's ahead. So if, if and it can change your, your car. So, for instance, if you're in nice weather, but two miles ahead it's raining, your car will know that, and it will start to adjust the suspension, the steering, and the vehicle dynamics so that you'll be you know, well-prepared. Your car will be well-prepared when you hit that. That's all ready for prime time, that kind of stuff. A little bit further ahead, though, is vehicle-to-infrastructure um, uh, communication so that uh, if you think about traffic jams, you can uh, your vehicle will be able to uh, talk to all the intersections so the traffic lights can be timed in real time. If you... Today, 30% of all fuel burned in major cities is burned looking for a parking spot. It's an incredible number, but it's, it's, it's a true number. We know that in San Francisco, for sure. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you do, and you know it in other cities. So now, what if your car can, when you leave home, pre-reserve you a parking spot, know exactly where that spot is, and you drive right to it and get out? That will be a huge help for global congestion. And these are all technologies we know about today, but there's going to be a tremendous uh, uh, surge of innovation that's going to help deliver this, uh, but it's going to actually require something beyond technology. It's going to require a level of coordination that we've never seen before. Coordination not just be between cars talking to each other, but every form of transport, uh, trains, buses, subways, cars, segways, bicycles, it's all going to have to be one interconnected network. It's going to have to be a network where, uh, uh, in some cases, one ticket will get you everything. And I know you've got some of that here already in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But, again, that's going to have to become much more sophisticated. But, really, it's going to require all the different forms of transport to work together in an urban environment to make it all work. Cars will be a piece of that puzzle. 
but we won't be the only piece. And one piece of the car puzzle is mobility as a service. Uh, I know you've talked about Zipcar and whether Zipcar car sharing, is that a threat to automakers or is that uh, an opportunity? Well, I think it's a great opportunity. I don't know how other automakers are doing it, but um, it's funny. You know, when I met you uh, at that same uh, event yeah. was uh, uh, Scott Griffith, the CEO of, of Zipcar. And I heard what he was saying, and I thought, this is really cool. So um, I got to know him. In fact, I went out that night, and we, we uh, hung out together that night. And I was really excited by the business model, and I thought, this is really interesting. So we just announced, I don't know, a month ago, I think, uh, a partnership with Zipcar that we're going to provide on 253 college campuses. Ford and Zipcar are partnering across the country. Uh, so I think it's a really great opportunity and it's a really good thing, again, for urban mobility because people don't have to own cars. They want to have access to cars. And so the Zipcar model, I think, is a great one. And you don't see that as a threat that, well, you're going to sell fewer cars because people don't – they they rent, they don't buy. Look, it's going to happen anyway, whether we like it or not. And so, um, <laughs> so, so we might as well like it. Uh, <laughs> there's there's one uh, interesting here in San Francisco called Relay Rides, which is a different model where yes. individuals think about a car. You buy it, and it sits there idle, depreciating. You're paying insurance. It's not used 80% of the time. You can rent it out and get some re- revenue off your idle car. Pretty cool. I'm familiar with it. It's very cool. Um, and I think all these n- new applications for uh, transportation are all going to be needed. And they're all. And I think if you know, if we're talking five years from now, we're going to be talking about stuff that we haven't even begin to think about. Um, but I, I, I do believe that that technology is really going to be uh, sort of the great liberator in all this. Not. Sh- I mean, I, I've outlined what some of those technologies are. But the rate of change in technology is is quite staggering. Uh, and just the no- notion of bringing the cloud into the vehicle, there are issues with that. There are privacy issues and, and, and things that still need to be worked out. But on the other hand, it can be really, really powerful. And how about young consumers? I mean, some of these things are you – know, car sharing comes natural to college campuses, sure. et cetera. Um, how do you think young consumers – I mean, they – used to be a car was a tool of social mobility. Now, uh, if you ask people if they give up their car or their cell phone, they might give up their car and keep their cell phone. Look, I think there's this whole model called collaborative consumption that's 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 out there in the next generation, and, and cars will be part of that. And so um, – and I think that that's something that, that the next generation is very comfortable with. And, and I, you know, and, and, and the cell phone and the iPad and the, and the, and the computer are all now seamless with the car. I mean, you know, your car can, you know, in this demo vehicle that we've, we've built called Evos, I mean, it's connected to your calendar. So your car will actually, you know, know if your meeting's running on time that you're going to and whether it's, I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable when you start to bring the cloud in, into the vehicle. We have to do it in a very thoughtful way, though, because, uh, you know, you can overload uh, drivers. Obviously, that's not a good thing for driver distraction. You can give people too much information. So, but the point is, there's no limit to what can be done. Um, and I think it's then up to us and customers to do it in a very thoughtful way. Another thing coming into the car is electricity. Uh, and uh, you have said that about by 2020, a quarter of the cars you sell will be electric. How are you going to get there? That's a really good guess, by the way. I have no idea. What that, no one knows. Right. Uh, sounds the, good. Uh, no one knows. Yeah. Well, I see. That's the thing. Nobody. I mean, I, I learned long ago that to predictions in our industry usually don't pan out. And uh, but I will say this: we, you know, we are making big bets on electric. And um, in fact, you know, we have an all-electric focus co- still coming this year. We have 
a, a plug-in coming next year. We're actually choosing to do something a little different, though, with our electric vehicles. Uh, a lot of our competitors, or some of them anyway, are doing purpose-built vehicles. We actually decided to electrify a mainstream product called the Focus. And the reason we did that is, uh, you know, Ford's history, my great-grandfather believed in uh, creating transportation for the average person and not to make it kind of an elitist thing. And so um, we felt that by electrifying a mainstream product like the Focus and making it affordable and uh, and also uh, making it flexible, so because coming down the same line will be um, an internal combustion, uh, 40 mile per gallon focus, a uh, uh, pure electric focus, a hybrid off of the focus platform, and a plug-in off the, uh, and that way the customer decides which one do I like best. Um, and whichever way they decide, we can flex up and meet that demand. So General Motors and Nissan have been first to the market with pure electrics. You're right. a little bit later, but you think you have a more flexible strategy. Well, I, mean, I like our strategy because it really lets the market decide how it all rolls out and what they what the customer wants because right now one size doesn't fit all and and I think you know and I think that's really because of batteries I mean you still have range limitations on pure electric and now you know we're rolling out our pure electric and I think that that has application for certain for instance if you live in San Francisco and all you do is drive in the city that's great pure electric is probably exactly what you want but now, if you have that same vehicle, but you want to drive to Los Angeles on the weekend, now you want a plug-in because you drive all week on the on the battery, but you have the freedom then of the gasoline backup engine to go, you know, wherever you'd like to go. Um, that distinction will start to narrow as batteries get better and range starts to extend on the pure electrics. And like all new technologies, expect that to happen. But as we sit here today, you really do have some range issues on pure electric, which then are, you know, ameliorated when you go to a plug-in or obviously a conventional hybrid. Nissan made a big splash when they priced the Leaf very aggressively. The Volt, some people say it's very high, around 40. Have you uh, decided on a price for the Focus? We haven't announced it, but it's it's obviously going to be very competitive uh, because, as I said a minute ago, we want to make it affordable to lots of people. And so, I mean, that's our goal on, on, on all our technology um, you know, it's interesting. Four, we made a very audacious bet about four years ago. We decided we wanted to be the fuel economy leader in every single segment. And coming from, from us and our background, that wasn't certainly our strength. And it's certainly not what people would have expected from us. The maker, maker of the Explorer. Well, yeah, in the, in the F-150. But we decided even in the F-150, we wanted to be the fuel economy leader. So we rolled out a technology. And, and so one of the things that enabled that was during the dark days of our industry, during the 2006, 7, 8, 9 uh, period, when a lot of our competitors, not just the domestic but, but overseas as well, were cutting back on R&D and cutting back on product programs, we actually accelerated ours because um, it seemed to us there's no point in going through a very painful restructuring if you come out at the end of the tunnel and the cupboard's bare. And so we also did some research uh, which showed that the number one pe- reason that people rejected Ford was fuel economy. So we said, okay, let's let's shoot for the moon here and see if we can actually deliver it. But to deliver it meant lots of new technology. And that's when we decided we had to double down on our product spending and our and our new technology. So we did that. And today we're you know we're in 12 segments. We're the uh, we're the uh, fuel economy leader, and we think that will continue to grow. 
but it, it requires a suite of technologies. It's, it's cleaner. You know, we were about to roll out a new three-cylinder gasoline engine. We've got, obviously, um, you know, hybrids and... And you're going to put the hybrid in the F-150 truck. Eventually we might, but it's hard to, it's harder to hybridize even to a bigger vehicle. It just is. I mean, it, uh, you know, batteries, you know, of that strength still aren't quite ready for prime time. You can make small hybrid in, uh, improvements. Frankly, you can make bigger improvements by something we call EcoBoost, which, uh, basically allows you to get the power of an eight cylinder, but the fuel economy of a six cylinder. And so we're, you know, that's when I said one size doesn't fit, fit all, and that's true of technology. For some segments, it's better to go there. Others, it's better to go electric. You know, others still, um, compressed natural gas as we start looking out into, into other, the bigger, uh, uh, vehicles. And, you know, and we're still working on biofuels and mm-hmm. on hydrogen. But it's interesting how things change. If we were talking two years ago, we would have been talking about cellulosic ethanol. Um, if we were talking a few years before that, it would have been fuel cells. And today it's electric. And we are making big bets on electric, but we're, we're still investing in those others because we really don't know how the world's going to break out. And until this nation has an energy policy, which we desperately need, uh, you know, all of this is going to be sub-optimized. Because think about electrification. So how are we going to build out the smart grid that we've been talking about for five or six years? It hasn't happened yet. How are we going to power this grid? Uh, that this, uh, we're going to have to build more plants. How are we going to power those? Are they going to be coal-fired? I hope not. Um, are they going to be nuclear? Well, that's a national discussion we need to have. Um, are they going to be? Will renewables do it for us? But we need, you know, we need to have a national policy and a, and a way to get there, because otherwise, we're going to be there with the hardware, and customers are going to say, yeah. I, you know, I like the hardware, but I just don't feel comfortable yet uh, because I don't have ubiquity of, of plugging. So I think that, you know, as a, as a nation, there are some discussions we need to have, and we need to have them pretty quickly. Are you part of any group in Washington trying to yeah. sort of advance that? Because it seems like the, the, there's a special interest. The coal people protect their thing. The, the natural gas people have a different view. It's, it's all carved up, and there's no coherent policy. Well, but but that's... You know, I, I guess I would just say too bad. We need to get on with it. Um, and, and, you, and, and, and the, yes, we are making our voice heard in Washington. Do you think that a gasoline tax would be part of that? I've been pushing for that for the last 10 years. Um, because uh, the I guess one, you're not going to run for elected office anytime well, soon. Well, politically, <laughs> no. For a lot of reasons. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but every yeah, economist no, says it's great, but no politician will touch no it. No politician will touch it. But, but you know, but, but I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of where that works. Uh, obviously, we're a big player in Europe. And uh, a bunch of years ago, not even, well, not a bunch of years ago, but within the last 10 years, the Europeans decided they wanted to come down the CO2 curve. And they said, okay, how are we going to do this? Um, well, at the time, diesel seemed to be the best option because electric was still far off and other biofuels weren't available. So what happened was the, the various EU governments, the NGOs, and the automakers all sat around a table. And we said, how can we collectively make this happen? So the automakers said, well, we could make the, the small diesels, uh, but the customers have to want to buy it. And so what the governments did across Europe, which made a lot of sense, was they gave tremendous tax breaks to diesel, and they taxed the heck out of petrol. So when a customer came into the gas station, it was a no-brainer. I want to buy the, the diesel. 
And guess what? It worked overnight almost. The diesel up, uh, penetration of the auto fleet just went like this. And it's still, and now it's, it's in every segment, it's, 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 it's worked. Um, but unfortunately, you know, without that kind of clear price signal to the customer, it wouldn't have happened that quickly. We don't have that in this country. Um, I mean, people often say to me, well, why don't you do diesels? You have them in Europe, you have them in Asia. Yeah, we do. But if you go into a, diesels cost slightly more to the customer to buy up front. Right. And if you and pull into a gas station today, diesel is either priced on or above gasoline. So customers saying, doing the math and saying this may not be worth the trip. And there's also health concerns about particulates from Yeah, diesel. well, that's a whole other thing. And, and, and you know, and, and that, yes, but we're solving that in Europe. It's, it's fairly expensive in terms of, you know, the treatment that we have to do. But, um, and, you know, for a long time, diesel was sort of a, a word you couldn't use in, in this country. Um, it's a dirty word because of the knocking and... Exactly. Yeah. Um, but in Europe, you know, they've embraced it. And, uh, but, and I'm not here to shill for diesel at all. In fact, I'm sort of agnostic whether we may do diesel or not. But I'm, I just point out that, that that was one approach where you had a, uh, a government that took pricing action to signal a behavior to the customer, and it worked. Do you think there should be a price on carbon emissions that would give that signal? Well, you know, that's, we were part of the original part of the Chicago Climate Exchange, which did carbon trading. And I, I think, I think with any carbon mechanism, it's so complicated. I mean, that's the one thing that we've, and it has to be economy-wide. And so I think a well-thought-out uh, uh, carbon scheme still has yet to be articulated. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is William Clay Ford, Jr., the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, your bio describes you as a lifelong environmentalist. What do you think about some of the recent uh, attacks on the EPA, clean air, clean water, et cetera, that's happened in Washington? Well, you know, I mean, we we, we work very well with um, the government. In fact, uh, you know, the one national standard for CAFE Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a very tough standard. Uh, we were the mileage standards. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We worked very closely with the government on that, and uh, and it was it's a t- it's going to be tough for us to do it, but but it's the right thing to do. And um, so you know, if I rewind ten years ago, we we basically said no to everything. Uh, I mean, our, our you know our whole goal environmentally was to comply, and not for leadership, but. And to litigate sometimes and fight the yeah, but, California. But, you know, well, well, here's the one thing that we couldn't stand in as manufacturer, because we can't have multiple states. That's why we really wanted one national standard, uh-huh. because as a manufacturer, if you try and make something for California, something different for Nevada, something different for I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. So we were happy to have a tough one national standard, because we can comply with that. Do you think there's a trade-off between environmental standards and jobs, that environmental standards cost jobs? Well, I know. I, I mean, I think you could turn it around and say they create jobs because it's going to require a lot of new technology to meet these standards. And so, um, you know, w- we are hiring people who, you know, are well-versed in things like solar, biofuels, electric. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, any time you, you <coughs> embrace – now, obviously, there's a, there, there's a tipping point where if, you do, if something goes into, into effect that you simply cannot do, well, then – you know, then then that's a problem. BMW did something recently. Their chairman said they got out of Formula One racing, which has traditionally been used to develop new technologies, and said they're going to put those resources instead into, uh, he would use the word premium, more uh, if efficiency and environmental and sustainability uh, initiatives, saying that's where change and innovation will come from. 
That's pretty interesting. I mean, when you think about take, saying, not racing, we're going to, rather than hey, these fuel-guzzling, high-performance cars, we're going to look for another place to innovate. Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 great. I mean, we're doing that, too. And, and I think, you know, Formula One, you know, we haven't been in that for a, quite a while. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know that we ever really derived a great benefit technically from it. I mean, our engineers liked working on it years sure. ago. I mean, yeah. it was fun. Um, I mean, they, they kind of had a blast working with, uh, you know, with, with race engines. But, but in really in terms of what it brought to the mainstream uh, products, it was probably minimal. One area of innovation, uh, there's a lot of car companies in, in California that are starting electric. There's Coda, Tesla, yeah, sure. Fisker, uh, Better Place. Uh, how do you, as based in Detroit with a large in, incumbent company, look at the innovation that's happening here in California? I think it's great. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's um, and it's not just in the electric space. You know, all this technology, information technology, safety technology, uh, it's really pouring now into the auto industry, and, um, and I love it. I mean, I, I'm on the board of eBay, which takes me to the to the valley all the time, uh, and when I'm always poking around when I'm there. And in fact, um, you know, I started my own uh, strategic investment fund in the intelligent uh, transportation space because I saw so much interesting, cool technology being developed uh, in in the what we call the ITS space. That you know, I really wanted to you know, personally play in this space. Because I think there's some, if you think about trying, my goal for Ford Motor Company and for my own career is to make people's lives better. And so how do we do that? Well, you know, it used to be that we provided ambulances and fire trucks and police cars and, and you know, and and really all the way back to my great-grandfather, you know, who, it's interesting, I don't know if you know this, but Prior to the Model T, most people never uh, traveled more from uh, uh, further from home in their entire lifetime than 25 miles. That's incredible. And the mo- and the yeah. Model T then changed where people lived, where they worked, and where they played. And so you know, and, and also helped create the middle class in the process uh, through the 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 assembly line and all that. So it, you know, it, to me, that's incredibly inspirational. But then, how do you? translate that into today and tomorrow. And to me, it's solving problems that are facing people. Global gridlock is obviously one of them. When I was younger, uh, you know, you mentioned my environmental interest. You know, I, it, was, it was how do I wake this industry up? Um, because we were a very insular industry uh, in an insular town uh, that, you know, and, and there weren't a lot of kindred spirits. And it was, you know, and it was, in fact, I was told to, you know, very early, and this was a direct quote, stop associating with any known or suspected environmentalists. Uh, and Card-carrying so, environmentalists. Yeah. Exactly. So that was, uh, you know, that was interesting. Um, and, <laughs> and then I addressed the Greenpeace International Conference, I think, in 1991. And I'm not sure who was more freaked out by it, the Greenpeace people or the people in Dearborn. Uh, so, um, but it was, uh, but, but, you know, and, and so... This whole notion of making people's lives better, I think, you know, is what drives me, and it really has to drive, you know, our enterprise. And not everybody's going to have that same resonance with it that works there, but, um, but it's why I get up in the morning. It sounds like the industry's come around to your point of view. Do you feel vindicated that sort of you were out ahead of the industry and, and um... I kind of feel like it's about time. Um, what took and, so long? Well, you know, but, but a lot of it, too, is technology because, you know, I don't want to keep harping on technology, but if you think of it, 
It used to be, even five years ago, if you wanted a, an environmentally um, you know, good car, there were big trade-offs you had to make to have that. Were you willing to give up space? Were you willing to give up creature comforts like air conditioning? And you know, uh, were you willing to um, uh, you know have a you know four-speed, three-speed manual transmission? Um, you know, it, it, they weren't a lot of fun to drive if you really wanted to have an environmentally correct car. And so, a lot of people, you know, if you asked anybody back then, are you environmentalists? Everybody says yes. But then you start saying, all right, what are you willing to give up for it? And, you know, the list starts shrinking pretty rapidly, the people that want us. But technology now has allowed us to, to have people have those kind of vehicles and still have everything else that they like. But couldn't the industry have done that sooner if it had invested in those technologies earlier? I don't, I don't think so, because a lot of the technology, you know, came from outside of our, our arena. And, mm-hmm. um, and so... Um, Batteries, for example. Well, that's obviously, that's a yeah. very obvious one. Um, I mean... I, you know, I, it's an interesting question, but on the other hand, we, a lot of us are trying. Um, and we were developing more fuel-efficient engines, but they weren't a lot of fun to drive. Uh, I mean, a four-cylinder, you know, in one of our cars was kind of a dog, frankly. Um, but today, the technology is if you drive a four-cylinder, you can actually have a heck of a lot of fun driving that. There was a fantastic episode on the Jay Leno uh, show two years ago where Rush Limbaugh drove, I believe it was a Ford electric car. And if you've seen that, he, you know, he, there's a course where he knocks down Al Gore and, and some other other things. Um, I, I, and, I, I missed that one. Uh, but you know, and Rush Limbaugh, you know, doesn't like Al Gore clearly, but he loved driving the electric car. So it doesn't matter your politics. Driving an electric car is just fun. Well, they're a blast. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's because there's no there's no uh, accelerator delay. You know, you punch it and you go. It's like a golf cart, basically. You know, except with a lot more behind it. But uh, but you know, it's it. We, we, you know, it, there's great irony in all this. You know, we spent my entire career trying to figure out how to make cars quieter. Now there's a big <laughs> debate about how do we add noise back into electric vehicles right. for pedestrians and everything else. So it's it, it makes me kind of smile because you know it's we we achieved the the ultimate. And now we got to dial it back. You were one of the first companies to bring in an outsider to run an auto company. You brought in Al Mulally mm-hmm. from, from Boeing. Now General Motors has an outsider from telecommunications. How has that changed the industry to have, for the first time, people who didn't come up, lifers running the company? Well, in Alan's case, it's been fantastic. Uh, but, but it's interesting. Um, you know, what, what happened when I hired Alan was, in t- you know, we, I took over in 2001 as CEO, and then we were, you know, wash in red ink, and, and we got back to three years of profitability. But in early 2006, I saw this uh, tidal wave coming at us. Uh, the consumer was tapped out. The uh, it, it, We had way too much capacity as an industry and Ford as well, and I knew a major restructuring was ahead of us. So I did two things. I first went out and borrowed everything we could, and you can imagine that was an interesting family discussion. They said, I said, by the way, we even mortgaged the Blue Oval. They said, you did, you did what? Uh, but, uh, the but family we, heirlooms. Yeah. yeah. But we, we, cause I knew, but then I, I, I knew, you know, I needed somebody who had done a major restructuring at a big industrial company to come help lead this. And there were, frankly, it was a pretty short list. Um, but Alan had done that at Boeing because right after 9-11, Boeing sales dropped 60%. And he had to completely revamp the, 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 the other thing was, it's, it was amazing the similarities between Boeing and Ford. They had the Toyota production system at Boeing. They had pretty much the same, uh, product development system at Boeing that we did. 
they had pretty much the same supply base uh, management that we did. And really the only difference was they sold their, via, their, their planes to governments and to, you know, big airlines, whereas we sell ours to, you know, to, to people. But, uh, but so it was a, the similarities were striking between Boeing and Ford. And, and, you know, and once I met Alan, um, I, I really didn't feel it'd be a stretch at all to bring him on board. But yet, there was a lot of skepticism from the outside. I mean, I'll never forget the first day I introduced Alan to the press. A lot of the longtime automotive press came up to me and said, uh, you guys are never going to make it. Uh, you hired this guy, and this is your death knell. And, uh, and obviously, you know, it turned out that the other guys went bankrupt, and we made it through. So, uh, and Alan's been magnificent. But, you know, and, and I don't know. Certainly, he looked at things with a fresh set of eyes. And probably the biggest thing he did, um, which I'm not sure an insider would have done, is he looked at all the brands we had. And he said, you've got Jaguar, Aston Martin, uh, Volvo, Land Rover, um, and, and, and Mazda we had a big share of. Uh, and, and how can we make the Ford brand shine when we're distracted by all this other stuff? And I think a lot of us were too close to those brands to maybe, maybe have made that decision. So well, they were acquired over time, right? So well, they, for they people were, there. and they were great brands, and we were in love with all of them, and uh, you know, and all of them stood for you know something that we thought was very interesting and 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 relevant to the customer. And yet, he was absolutely right. For us to make the Ford oval shine again, we had to focus just on Ford and pour all this technology that we were developing for all these other brands into the Ford brand. And so, um, and I think that that's a. a a case of, of a fresh set of eyes and somebody without an emotional attachment coming in and saying, I think this is what we need to do. If you're just joining us, our guest today is William Clay Ford, Jr., executive chairman of Ford Motor Company. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you mentioned that you got through uh, the financial crisis uh, because of the, the borrowing. You've had 10 quarters of profits. Uh, Standard & Poor's just upgraded Ford's credit grading to uh, to near investment grade. You haven't reinstituted a dividend. Do you have any ideas when you'll add a dividend? Or you sound what like the... a member of my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't. <laughs> Dad, when's that going to start? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I have a lot of cousins and relatives that are very interested in that as well. I'm not acting in their behalf, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, but how about the financial outlook for the company? Well, you know, we've 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 made it through a really tough period, and we've paid down a ton of debt, and we've paid it down much faster than certainly the outsiders, but actually faster than we thought we could too. And so um, we really feel good about where we are. But you know, the world is not a happy place right now. You know, as we all know, I mean, it's it's you know, we've got Europe having real issues, Asia's slowing down. You know, there's you know, big issues in our economy. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're very conservative in our planning, and I think it's very appropriate. So um, we have a very focused plan, and we stay slavish to it. Um, and it's getting us through a, a very, very tough time. But, you know, it's there's not a lot of blue sky out there. Uh, having said that, we are doing well in a pretty tough time. And we believe we can continue to do well you know, if we continue to serve the customer uh, and to continue to give them what they value. Speaking of uh, not a lot of blue sky, there's the euro crisis, a lot of economic troubles. One way that's manifesting is in the Occupy things, you know, which is directed at, at uh, corporations partially. How do you how do you view that? Well, I, I mean, I certainly under, I mean understand the the 
the frustration, but I, I look at it, you know, so what can we do about it? And so one of the things I feel really good about is, you know, we're adding 12,000 jobs in the U.S. Uh, over the next few years, and we're adding, uh, we're adding uh, blue-collar jobs, we're adding white-collar jobs, and we're actually growing uh, the manufacturing base in North America, and that's something I don't, we couldn't have done, you know, six, seven years ago. But we've, we've restructured our company to, to add jobs, uh, and, I, and it's, it's, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the fact that, um, that, that we are going to be able to offer uh, jobs from, you know, from everything from the kind of technology that we've been talking about mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to assembly line jobs and, and lots of stuff in between. Jobs. Uh, let's talk about China for a moment. China is a huge potential car market. It's also a competitor uh, in terms of technology innovation. Perhaps will we see Chinese imports into the U.S. like we saw a wave of Japanese imports suddenly? Well, I'm, I'm sure we will at some point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's inevitable. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, we, when I think of our competitors, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I was in our corporate strategy office in the early 80s, and there was a prediction then that we boldly – Thankfully, I didn't author it, but it was, you know, I was too junior. But uh, one of our, our top people uh, said that within seven years, there would be a total of a maximum of six manufacturers globally, and there might only be three because there would be tremendous consolidation. Well, in fact, that didn't happen. What happened was quite the obvious, I mean, quite, quite the opposite. We've had a proliferation of competitors. You know, first, the, obviously, the Japanese, then the Koreans, now the Chinese. And that's just the world we live in. And we have to take on all comers and prove ourselves every day uh, to, to our customers that, that, you know, that we're a company worth them considering. So, yeah, I'm sure we're going to be competing against Chinese and, and, uh, and, you know, and after them it may be somebody else. I mean, you've got, you know, uh, Russian companies. Uh, Korean you know, Hyundai seems to have come up pretty strong recently. Oh, yeah. Hyundai? Absolutely. I mean, Hyundai, Kia, I mean, you know, there are, you know, we've got... We play in a tough industry with some great competitors. Uh, but, you know, you can't shy away from it. It makes you better as a competitor if you're playing with tough players. Uh, we haven't touched directly on climate change. I want to do that. Uh, before, let's say we're going to put uh, the audience microphone up here and we're going to have some questions for, uh, for Mr. Ford. So, but again, the line will form back there at that door and we'll put the microphone there. Um, if you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is William Clay Ford, Jr., the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about climate change. Uh, there was a story recently that the that, uh, kind of, U.S. hasn't done much on that front where a lot of is happening, you said, earlier, Europe earlier. Um, how do you view the, the climate change debate in the United States you know, as an executive? Well, it's kind of like I said about national energy policy. I mean, you know, we need to – there's so many noises that nothing much is happening. I mean, one of the things we've done is we've just taken upon ourselves as a corporate uh, citizen to slash our CO – we've set tough CO2 targets for ourselves, for our cars, and also for our facilities. We're also focusing on water, which, again, is something that a, uh, a, lot, yeah. a lot of, you know, people don't really think of water – I mean, I, I – I shouldn't say that. I think in the West, you guys do more uh, because water issues are, are part of everyday life for you. Um, but in parts of the country, it's just not anybody's radar screen. But we, we set a very tough water usage uh, uh, standard for ourselves. And I, I think this number is right. Since 2000, we've cut our water usage by about 65%. And uh, we're going to continue on that goal. So whether it's CO2, water... Chemicals, you know, we, we are really pushing hard as a corporation. 
A, it's the right thing to do. B, it's actually the right business decision. Saves, uh, saves money. Well, it does. <clears throat> it does. And also, you're, you know, what you can't measure is how your employees feel about you. Well, you can measure it, but I mean, it's it's tangible and it's real and it's something we want our employees proud of us. And we want them to say, be able to say to their family and friends, you know, I work at Ford and, and, and it's a great company. Um, so that's important to us as well. Lots of organizations, individuals are doing a lot, but scientists would say, and I'm sure you know them, would say it's not happening fast enough to stabilize the climate where it needs to get. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, you just look at the data, um, you know, and whether it's the polar ice caps or whether it's the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the drilling of the ice and capturing historical data, I mean, anything one looks at, you kind of end up in the same place. Pine bark beetles devastating yeah, forests, yeah. I mean, et it's, exactly. Let's have our first audience question. Yes, sir. Good evening, Mr. Ford. My name is Virian Bouzet. I'm the director of the Oakland Institute of Automotive Technology, Incorporated. I put together a program to teach people about the electric vehicle program. It's a nonprofit. When they complete the nonprofit program... Hope that isn't one of our engines. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> and, yeah. we, um, and your question? Basically, what I would like to do is uh, try to reach you where I could get technical information from your engineering department. Sure. And the other part is, is uh, building a prototype heavy-duty three-axle diesel tractor, converting it to electric. Oh, that's very cool. And um, So perhaps you can connect with one yeah, of people. Yeah, Brad sure. Simmons here has worked for me, and I'll, I'll make sure Brad gets your info, and right. we'll definitely connect. Right, because um, this Thank is a, a door opening for high school graduates to have a job that's never been there before. Well, congratulate. I think that's okay. really cool. And, yes, we will follow up with you. And we so have, thank you. Much. We have some high school students here Thanks. tonight. Um, let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. I'm Don Siefkes from San Leandro and also from Sterling Heights, Michigan. Oh, no kidding. Yes. <laughs> when you say also, you mean originally from? 50, 50% there, 50% oh, here. okay. In keeping with your stated objective, helping making people's lives better, why can't Ford Motor Company manufacture E100 flex fuel engines where the mileage is optimized for ethanol and not gasoline instead of making E85 engines where the optimization is for gasoline mileage? Brazil did something similar to this years ago, and today Brazil imports no crude oil. Zippo, nada, zero. Yeah. Doing this would eliminate the need for the Keystone XL pipeline and make the United States independent of imported crude oil much faster and at a fraction of the cost of the electric vehicle program. Well, you, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're a big player in Brazil, and we're part of that development of the Brazilian industry. And you're right. It all runs on basically sugarcane et- ethanol. There are huge government subsidies for that. Uh, they're enormous, and uh, it's frankly unaffordable long-term for the Brazilian government. You know, we, we can do it. I mean, we, as I say, we make our, we're, we're a big player in the Brazilian uh, market and have been. Um, and one of the things about ethanol, though, is it's hard, as you know, it's hard to transport. So, um, and, you know, and there was a lot of, as I said earlier, a couple of years ago, there was a big uh, discussion about cellulosic uh, ethanol because it, nobody wants to do it with corn because then you get into the food versus, you know, fuel debate. And, uh, and so, but, but it's, you know, to, to manufacture it in the quantities that we would need would be an enormous undertaking. And if that happens, we will absolutely be there with the, with the hardware. No question. 
but the problem is, um, as we sit here today, we can, you know, the, the electric, the electrification of our industry is something that we think is more commercially doable earlier. Now, would it be cheaper for us to do ethanol? Absolutely. Because the modification of an engine isn't a big deal, as you probably know. Um, you know, it's some seals and, and a few other things, because ethanol tends to burn a little hotter than gasoline. So you, you have to change a few of the fittings and connections, but it's not a big deal. So if we really thought that this country was going down the ethanol highway, boy, would we be there. But we don't see any sign of that. In fact, and we can't drive. I mean, one of the great frustrations we have as, as a manufacturer is people say, well, why don't you just do X? Well, the reality is we can do X, but if the rest of the country isn't going that way, we're going to have a bunch of X's made and nobody's buying them. So, uh, so, so, so the smartest thing for us to do, which I, I believe, which is what we're doing, is to continue to invest in the technology for biofuels, for hydrogen, and for these other propulsion systems, compressed natural gas, so that if one of these actually breaks as a commercial as a commercially viable entity, we'll be there. We don't want to be on the outside looking in saying, well, wow, how did that happen? And now what, what are we going to do? But as we sit here today, it's, it's not, and we're not in charge of that. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're not a fuel provider. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. Aloha, Mr. Ford. My name is Ro. I'm the CEO of Kuakoa from Hawaii. I just want to thank you for your leadership in all these areas on environmentalism. I also wanted to ask you to please come to Hawaii with your electric Ford Focus. We're not in one of the launch markets, but we're perfect place because we have the infrastructure, we have the government support, we have the subsidies, and we have plug-ins. So if you can do anything about and you have bringing solar the, roofs, yes, we um, do, and you yeah, can't drive very far exactly to exactly. Hawaii, <laughs> we will greet you with a lua. A well, lua. it's not a tough sell to get me to Hawaii. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> it's, uh, so no, thank you. And actually, you know, the way I, you raise a good point because the way we are rolling out the, our electric focus is we've chosen some early markets like California that we think are going to be early adopters uh, and, and, and also, you know, some of the East Coast markets. Eventually, we'll be everywhere with them. But we because, you know, it required a sort of a, fo- uh, a, a targeted launch, I was going to say a focus launch would be a uh, – but it, it would uh, – we, we actually chose California and New York City first. We will get to Hawaii with it, but, and thank you for that. Let's have our next audience question for William Clay Ford, Jr., A few weeks ago, Mitt Romney was campaigning for the presidential nomination in Michigan, and he said that the largest problem facing the American automobile industry is unionization. Um, Do you agree with Mr. Romney's assessment, and how would you characterize Ford's relationship with the unions? I I don't agree with that, Um, and and I think we have a tremendous relationship with our union. We've accomplished a lot together. Um, One of the things that I have always believed is that – I don't look at our workers as union and salary. I look at them as Ford workers. Uh, we all work at Ford. We all have a stake in the company. And when I walk into our plants, you know, our workers don't say, you know, I'm union. They say, you know, I work at Ford and I love it. And a lot of them, I, I'm fourth generation. We have a ton of people in our plants that are second, third, fourth, even fifth generation. Um, and they are very, they love what they do and they're very proud of our company and they want us to win. And an example I'll cite was, you know, during the, the, the horrible downturn that our whole industry went through, you know, o- over the last five years, our union was great in helping us get competitive again. I mean, we, we did a uh, – uh, they took control of the health care, which was a huge drag on us, in a, in a VIVA, which they, they took. They 
this new contract that we just signed last week, they did a number of things to ensure our competitiveness as a company going forward. Um, and But it's a relationship. It requires working on every day. You don't just show up every four years at a table and sit across from somebody you don't know and say, okay, you know, how... What do you want? And here's what we're going to give you. I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is the relationships that I have within the people, within, within our company, and, and most especially within our plants. Um, and, you know, and, I, and that's something I think that surprises people who, who don't know Ford. They probably assume that, you know, I'm the corporate type and that we have the union types and that we don't like each other. Well, there was a, uh, I believe there was an accident at River Rouge, one of your plants a few years ago, and you went right down there. Yeah, that was a bad day. That was a very bad day. But a lot of CEOs wouldn't have done that. Well, but yeah. In fact, the advice I got was uh, generals don't go to the front. And I said, well, I said, well, then bust me to private because I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going right there. And and you know, to me, it was the only human thing to do. Um, and but but uh, so no, I, I I very much think that our our you know I can only speak to our union, and uh, our union works really well with us to make us competitive. And actually, you know, and if you said, if then were to say, and because people have asked, well, then how did it get so out of whack? Well, we gave it to them over the last 50 years. I mean, it wasn't as if uh, they did it to us. I mean, it takes two to tango. And we together then shifted gears and said, all right, how do we make us more competitive? And we've done that. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, uh, Tim Collins, and I'm the founder and president of Clean Speed Technologies. We're located down at NASA Ames uh, near Mountain View. Okay. Um, I was lucky that uh, I have a great friend who's on my advisory board, Roy Chapin III. Oh, and yeah, he, sure. So I hung out a lot in Gross Point. Well, his, you know, his dad was uh, chairman of American Motors. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. yeah. And so Roy's been a big help to us. Uh, we, we developed electric. And actually, that's, his cousin is right there. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, well, we'll chat. Let's have so your question. Roy, Roy was here two days ago. So uh, anyway, let's have um, your question. Thanks. Yeah, uh, what we found in, in, is in, R, in the R&D is that the uh, the electric vehicle system is really complicated. The pure system. Uh, we believe that there's a frontier, and it's and it's between the hybrid and the electric. And uh, so because of that, we think that uh, it's just, just a wide open playing field. And we look at the auto industry as you as you would look at it in 1910 uh, for the electric vehicles. And I think that there's just going to be many companies like Tesla and like our company uh, that will be starting up, and some of them, of course, will be successful. So I guess my question to you, and, you know, you let a lot of engineers go in, in 2008, just like all the other automobile companies, is do you see the electric vehicles as a playing field? The, you know, the Focus has a power system developed, you know, outside. So um, I just wanted to, to know what your thinking was there. Yeah, we actually think it's a core competency for us, and we are building uh, a very large electric uh, capability within Ford. But you, you're absolutely right. I mean, we certainly don't have, and I would never claim we did, you know, a monopoly on good ideas. I mean, a lot of the really cool stuff will happen elsewhere. We just have to be open-minded enough and nibble enough to accept that and to, you know, wherever there's a good idea or a new technology, be willing to adopt it. And I think you're seeing that with us. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, our sync, which we developed with Microsoft, uh, we, we've made it an open platform. We have a lot of startups in the Valley developing apps for Sync um, rather than us trying to own it all. And that that's very different behavior from a company like ours. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I love what you're doing, and, and I love what a lot of the other companies are doing. And anything that can move us quicker 
towards you know where we'd all like to go, I, I'm all for it. Are you shopping for any acquisitions, companies to buy up that you think that because you'd you like know to I don't think actually we want to buy companies. I think we want to be customers for good ideas. Uh, and the reason I say that is you know you buy a company and it's a snapshot in time, and all of a sudden that company, what you thought you were buying, you know is antiquated in three years, or the founder left, or the key scientist left, or they don't like working in a big company. And, you know, it could be any of those things. And so I think for us to be really as nimble as possible, we don't need to own, in fact, probably shouldn't own a lot of these companies. We should just be great customers for them uh, and help them develop their technologies. Next question, please. Mr. Ford, I'd like to thank you for the values you've brought to the American auto industry. Uh, and you said you want to improve people's lives. And as a former taxi commissioner in San Francisco, I just want to thank you on behalf of San Francisco's taxi drivers because we've converted about 85% of our taxi fleet to hybrid vehicles. Seven years ago next month, we introduced the first fleet of hybrid taxis in America. It was a Ford Escape. It's been a tremendous success for us. So I don't really have a question. I just want to thank, well, thank you, you for your advocacy and for well, Ford. That's very nice. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate it. You know, it's interesting, too, because we weren't sure how hybrids would hold up in city driving, you know, because we're in New York as well. Uh, New York and San Francisco, you know, there's some pretty tough driving going on. You know, New York with the potholes and San Francisco with the hills. And so, but to our great uh, delight, the hybrids have been proven to be very, very durable, which has been great, because actually that's helped translate for retail customers that durability. So thank you for that. And the drivers love them because they they cost them less gas. Uh, it was a real win-win situation. Yeah, it's been great. But it was a it was a leap of faith for San Francisco and for New York to to do that because it wasn't a no-brainer by any means because they didn't know what they were really getting into. And why don't more cities do it? Cities are they're, they're actually doing that now. And, and a lot of it's, it's it's a cost issue. It's just a lot of the city's fleets are just old. But when they're starting to renew them, you're starting excuse me starting to see. Uh, hybrids are much more part of the equation. Yeah, certainly save uh, the drivers on gas. Yes, sir, next yeah. question. Um, Mr. Ford, my name is Andrew Frankel. I joined you 50 years ago. Could I please have my gold watch? <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't gold. I actually want to hang on to it. But, uh, <laughs> thank you. Right. Uh, seriously speaking, two, two very quick questions. One, uh, were you a bit surprised that Rick Wagner turned up saying, would you like to merge? And would you agree that your secret weapon is Louis Booth? Might explain who those people yeah, are. The, yeah, when Rick Wagner, uh, is that your first one? Yeah, the, the, the first uh, question was, uh, was I surprised when Rick Wagner, who was the CEO of General Motors, um, came to us about merging? Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it was during the dark days, and you know, and, and you know, I grew up in an era where General Motors was the big, you know, the, the big gorilla in, the, in, in, in Detroit, and we were, you know, always trying to, you know, be a scrappy number two. And so, uh, yeah, it was a bit surreal to, to have that conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it was the right decision not to. Um, it, we, we couldn't have handled it. Uh, we, you know, we were very fragile ourselves, and we were very much like General Motors. We didn't need, you know, we had, you don't need Chevy trucks and Ford trucks. You don't need Camaros and Mustangs. You don't need, so, you know, really, if, if the goal would have been to preserve jobs, it wouldn't have happened because there would have to have been a lot of slashing and burning. Um, so we weren't the logical person, logical player to, to do it with them. Um, and and, and you, you mentioned Lewis Booth, our chief financial officer. Yeah, he's been terrific. Um, he used to run Ford of Europe. Uh, he used to, I mean, he's run operations all around the Ford world. 
and it wasn't a natural for him to become a chief financial officer, but he's been a great one. So thank you for that. Next audience question. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome, Bill. Giving Thanks. away my age a little bit, this goes back before World War II. A friend of mine's grandmother had an electric car, and as a preteen, we would go back and forth on the long driveway. I'd like to think if this much time and development had been spent on uh, electric, electric cars against the internal combustion engine, we might have had them a little sooner. There's no question about it. You raise a really interesting point. My great-grandfather's best friend was Thomas Edison. And together they – they uh, actually, if I could digress just for a second, this is kind of cool. Um, we love these stories. They, yeah. they, uh, there, there, was a, there was a group that called themselves the Vagabonds, and it was uh, Harvey right. Firestone, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison – uh, the naturalist John Burroughs and whoever the president at the time. And they would, uh, they would go camping. Um, and, um, and there were some great stories that came out. My grandmother uh, told me that, uh, before she died that she got invited. It was rare that they invited wives, but they invited, um, she got, they went along and she said it was kind of neat because Edison would string up portable electric lights, uh, at camp and, um, and, and he was pretty well deaf, so all the pictures you see was Henry sort of screaming in his ear. But Edison was, was, Edison was very vain about it, so he didn't want any pictures taken when, you know, with his, cause he had a hearing aid. But, um, so she was telling this one story. They pulled up to, at, uh, this general store. They were in, in northern Maine in the middle of nowhere. And so she went out with a guide, and the guide looks out the window and said, well, I recognize those people. And she said, yeah, you know, that's Harvey Firestone, that's Henry Ford, that's Thomas Edison, that's President Harding. And he, and he turned, the fellow who ran the general store turned to the guide and said, right, and who are you, Jesus Christ? Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but in, in, in any case, um, the, uh, but you're absolutely right. They did del- deliver, uh, develop the electric vehicle, and they were running around on electricity, you know, back a hundred years ago. The Detroit Electric, right? It was a, it was a, lady's, yeah, but, a lady's car. But, but here's the thing. Gasoline was a lot cheaper. Fuel, you know, they, they, they discovered, uh, oil in Texas, and, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, gasoline was, you know, and it wasn't clear. I mean, steam was, it was either going to be steam or electric that was going to power the world at that point. And all of a sudden, you know, gasoline was, was discovered in, in big quantities, or uh, oil was, and all, and, and then it, it became the fuel for aviation, for, 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 uh, uh, boats, and for cars. And, you know, I often wonder what would have happened, you know, had that, but it, would, but it, it, it was the cheapest option. 1935, my first airplane flight was at a Ford Trimotor. So maybe there is a connection there with uh, Boeing. But question I have, what training programs have you developed for people that don't have the skills, need to acquire them, particularly returning veterans? We actually work very closely with the veterans group, and uh, uh, we are we do have training programs, uh, both technical and also with uh, the UAW. And it's uh, it's you know our, our relationship with the veterans group is something that's kind of a highlight of ours. We also do a lot. In addition to that, we do a lot of of uh, outfitting vehicles for uh, veterans that come back that are handicapped. So, um, you know, it's and we can't do enough for them, obviously. So our next audience question. Yes, sir. When will we be able to buy a car from Ford that drives itself? Yeah, I mean it's. I mean it's. It's a very good question. I hope we never see that. I love to drive. Now, having said that, uh, you know, to me it's it's a it's kind of a blast to drive. But but a lot of people, you know, particularly in urban areas, would like. Uh, and and you know and so we are working on autonomous cars as are others. I mean, you know, Google's. 
I, I, I spoke at the TED conference uh, this last year, talked about global gridlock, and you know Google was there demonstrating a driverless vehicle. It was very cool. We have one. Um, G, I think GM does. Others probably do as well. When, what's the time frame? I can't tell you that because you think of the safety issues, the uh, the huge logistical issues in terms of, of traffic flows and red lights and, you know, pedestrians and all those things that are going to have to be uh, factored in. And right now it's just a very cool demo thing. Um, and, you know, and it's still not perfect. But technology is coming along fast. And, you know, I'd be surprised if certainly in my driving lifetime if we didn't have them on the road. I can't give you a precise timing because I just don't know. Uh, and we're going to have to have a lot of discussions around those other issues that, that I outlined before they really are ready for for everyday people to have them. But, you know, you know it's interesting. Um, I get to see kind of all all kinds of cool new stuff, some of which, you know, makes sense. And well, you know, I've been, you, You'd be amazed at how many people have come to me lately, inventors, with flying cars. Um, so you could get back in the, in the uh, aviation business. Yeah, but there's one... And they work, and it's actually kind of you know. Because, I mean, I've prototypes work where they fold the, the the wings and they stow in the trunk. And have you gotten in one yet? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> but there's other one other sort of small point that you know that kind of I think is a limiting factor is they have you have to have a pilot's license to have one. Yeah. You have to take off and land at airports, and so kind of you know at that point, what's what's the purpose? But but actually, I love the, the thought process that goes into it, um, and whether it's flying cars or autonomous vehicles. I mean, we are really entering a, an age where all this is possible, and technology is really going to be delivering it. Then we'll have to use common sense to say what really makes sense here and what, what kind of technology is going to act, make our lives better and what kind of technology is going to make our lives more complex and more difficult. And I think that's where the judgment starts to come in. People often think that the auto companies and the oil companies are, are pretty close together. Are, are they blocking the move toward uh, you know, electricity, which would kind of doesn't really displace? matter. It's happening. I mean, it's uh, and you know, and, and it's interesting. Um, I've heard that we're not aligned with anybody uh, and can't be. I mean, we, you know, whether it's say biofuels or whether it's compressed natural gas. I mean, you, you know, I won't re- go through the litany again of, of, of fuels, but. We have to be completely agnostic about fuel providers other than we would like ubiquity of fueling, whatever that fueling is, whether it's charging or, or, or ethanol or, uh, you know, gasoline, diesel, whatever it is. Our customers have to be able to get it, and they have to be able to get it in a way that makes them confident um, because if they have to worry about where am I going to fuel up, people don't want to be there, and they shouldn't be there. So, um, but but no, I mean it's I mean it's it's going to happen. We've come to the end. I just want to ask you sort of a, a legacy question. You have uh, youngish children, as as do others. Two of them are here yes. tonight. Yeah. Um, so and they live in this city. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm very envious of the fact they live in this city. And my son is here as well. So th- talk about the what this our generation is handing off to the next generation, both in terms of you know the environmental situation as the financial situation. You talked about not so much. Well, we that. have huge problems facing us, but I also believe we have huge opportunities ahead of us. And I, I am no more pessimistic today than I was 10, 20 years ago. And, in fact, I think I'm more optimistic because there's also a generation of problem solvers. I mean, if you think back 
to what an environmentalist meant when you and I were growing up, it meant you were against everything uh, because that's all you could be. Um, you 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 were you know you were out protesting. You were plugging up pipes at you know at, at uh, you know uh, chemical factories, and you were you know uh, basically trying to limit yourself in a way that you know most people couldn't do or didn't want to do. And there was no way out other than just stopping everything and being against everything. But I think there's a generation now that wants to solve problems and wants to bring you know, technology to bear to solve those problems. And, and so um, I'm actually really hopeful that this next generation is going to deliver. We kind of screwed up the world. I'm actually hopeful that, and I think this next generation is going to be the one that's going to save us. Um, and I, I, I hope I'm around long enough to, you know, to see it because I'm, I'm actually very excited and, and optimistic that as, as big as the problems that we face are, um, and as, and as, as the, le- as poor as the legacy that some of the prior generations, including ours, has left, I think this generation is, is, you know, they, they, they have the get up and go to solve it and they're going to have the tools to make a big dent in it. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Our thanks to been listening to William Clay Ford, Jr., Executive Chairman of Ford Motor Company at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. A complete uh, interview is available in the iTunes store, this podcast, a free podcast. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank Greg. you very Thanks. much. That was fun. Thanks.